0: Uh, this morning we continue our series in uh, Psalms, looking at Psalm 2. Uh, so if you uh, brought your Bible, uh, turn to Psalm 2. Uh, some sermons uh, come together pretty easy. Um, it takes a long time to, to study and to write. The writing part is uh, particularly uh, laborious for me. Um, this is not one of those sermons that came together pretty easy. Um, I had uh, what I thought the psalm was saying, and where I, what I wanted to do with it, but I tried all different ways to, to write and approach, and, and just nothing uh, seemed to work. Uh, and Thursday, my wife uh, came to the office so we could have lunch together, so I could take her out to lunch, actually, and she was paging through uh, this new book that we just got in our bookstore. Uh, called The Biggest Story, uh, How the Snake Crusher Brings Us Back to the Garden. It's a children's book written by Kevin, uh, Kevin DeYoung, and uh, she got so excited reading it, and she was reading it to me and telling about it that um, it, it sort of uh, coalesced in my mind what I was going to do uh, this morning. Uh, to understand this psalm, I think, uh, you need to understand the story of the Bible. Uh, where has the story been, and, and where is God taking uh, this story? And um, last night, as Jen read my sermon, and, uh, and then this morning, what she told me is, I'm so excited um, uh, to hear the story. Oh, and your sermon, too. Um, so she's more excited about uh, DeYoung's book. Uh Uh, So I'm going to read to sort of get us up to speed to understand Psalm 2 and how it fits into the bigger picture of God's story of the Bible. I'm going to read just the beginning of uh, DeYoung's uh, book to you. He says, as all good stories do, "Once upon a time, uh, there lived a man and a woman. They were the happiest people on the planet." True, uh, they were the only people on the planet, uh, but they were terrifically happy. Uh, Their names were Adam and Eve, and God made them. He made them in his image, like uh, little mirrors reflect God's glory. And like everything else God made, he made them good. It was a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. Unfortunately, things didn't stay happy and wonderful for long. On one very bad day, Adam ate from the only tree God had declared off-limits. Adam failed. A snake had tricked Adam and Eve and told them a lie. He said they would be like God if they ate the fruit. But actually, the opposite was true. When they ate it, they found themselves far away from God. They had disobeyed God's word and believed the lie of the devilish snake instead of the truth. God was not happy with Adam and Eve. He wasn't happy with the snake. God put a curse on the man and the woman and the snake and everything else. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden paradise he had made for them. It was impossible for a people who were so bad to live with a God who is so good. They had to go. But before... But before they left... God made a promise. He promised that the evil serpent, serpent the devil, would, would always... That looked like my dad when I did that, didn't it? Uh, that, <laughs> he promised that the evil serpent, the devil, would always be at war with Eve and her children. Now, that doesn't sound like a very... Nice promise that bad guys and good guys would fight all the time who wants to be in a war that never ends but here is where the good part of the promise comes in God promised that one of Eve's children would someday eventually sooner or later crush the head Of that nasty snake nobody knew when or how but she would have a child to put things right will you pray with me our father uh, we thank you uh, that the snake is crushed that jesus is victorious and so uh, in him we are victorious as well and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We ask that you would take it and you would pierce our heart that it would be truth to us this morning, that you would use it to enlighten our minds, to see, to understand, and believe the truth of the gospel better. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As we just really heard the beginning of the Bible story. The, the story of the Bible is deep. Yeah, it's very simple. It can be summed up in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, glorification. It is the story of human history and what God has done, what he is presently doing and, and where he is taking us. De Young introduced us to the, uh, the original man of the story, Adam. In Luke 3, Adam is called a son of God, created in God's image to reflect God's goodness and his care for the creation. He is a son by covenant, meaning God tells Adam who he is And what is to do? What is his purpose? In Genesis 1, God tells Adam and Eve to what? Be fruitful and multiply. He says to fill and subdue or rule the earth. God ruled the garden. And Adam, as a faithful covenant son, was to extend God's rule to the ends of the earth. Adam failed. He rebelled against God, and in Adam, as our covenant representative, we we all fell under the curse of sin. Humanity now dwells in the wilderness, outside the garden paradise, which represents God's uh, presence and his rule. But God promised to make a way for us to return to the garden and to have fellowship with him once again. He promised that from Eve would come the snake crusher who would destroy sin and Satan. In time, God called Abraham and promised to make from him a nation that would bless all the peoples of the earth. God makes that same promise to Abraham's son Isaac, and he makes the same promise to Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation from whence the snake crusher will come. When Jacob is an old man, he's blessing his 12 sons. And he says this prophetically about Judah. In Genesis 49:10 he says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his a son of Judah, a son of Abraham, a son of Adam, a son of God, will rightly rule the nations. 500 plus years later, David is the king of Israel. He is the great, the greatest king of Israel. All other Old Testament kings are compared to him god calls david a man after my own heart god anointed david as king and established his throne and that's where the story uh, gets to as we come to psalm 2. now there is no author attached to Psalm 2, Uh, but according to Acts 4, David is the author, that he spoke this psalm through the work of the Holy Spirit in him. As we read Psalm 2, and the the text uh, will be on the screen, I want you to note an important variation. In your Bible, uh, you probably see the, the word Lord in small capital letters, that word is actually Yahweh, uh, God's covenant name. And so I have translated it, Yahweh on the screen. Yahweh is the name God revealed to Israel. God placed his name, Yahweh, on Israel and marked them as his own. Yahweh's name represents his character as the faithful one, as the covenant keeper. Now, the Ten Commandments... Uh, say, thou shalt not take the Lord, your God's name, in vain. And so, to make sure that they never use God's name in vain, Jews would never say God's name Yahweh. Instead, when they were reading Scripture, when they came to the word Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. Our English Bibles have taken up that practice. And so, wherever in Scripture you see Lord in small caps, it's actually uh, God's name. Covenant name. Now there's nothing wrong with what our Bibles do if we understand what's going on. Uh, but sometimes I think the practice, uh in that practice we miss certain nuances. Uh, God here uses his covenant name, Yahweh, to remind his people that he is true to himself. And because he is true to himself and he has made covenant with us, he will be true to us. So let's read uh, Psalm 2. David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord, and that's actually the word Adonai there, uh, so the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath Therefore, you kings, be wise. be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all, all Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, as David wrote this, he is king over Israel. But his influence goes way beyond Israel borders in what is called a suzerain vassal treaty. It was a fairly common practice in the ancient Near East. A weaker nation, the vassal, would have relative autonomy to rule their own land. However, the vassal, the weaker uh, country, the weaker nation pledged faithfulness, that is, obedience and love, to the stronger nation, the suzerain. This kind of treaty occurred typically when the weaker nation was being invaded or oppressed, and the greater nation would come. ...to their aid and rescue them. In exchange for faithfulness, the stronger nation, the suzerain, promised always... ...to come to the aid of the weaker nation. David is the suzerain. He ruled over not just Israel, but a number of weaker nations... Ammon, Moab, Edom, if you look at a map of his kingdom, of his influence, it goes into Syria, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, It, it, it goes far north to touch the border of Turkey, and on the south it actually pushed to the border of Egypt. David had rescued these weaker nations, and they had promised faithfulness to him. He had shown them kindness and friendship by coming to their aid. And so they promised to follow him, at least for a time. But instead of loving David and his benevolent rule, they grumbled and murmured and planned a revolt. That's what it says in verse 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plots in vain? He's not asking for information. It's astonishment. Why why would you do this? The kings of the earth take their stand, and they take their counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed. They want to burst the bonds. They want their freedom. They want their autonomy. They don't want to be ruled by David. But the rebellion is simply not just against David, is it? but against God himself because they plot, what does it say, against Yahweh and against his anointed. For it was God, in verse 6, who says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It is an international conspiracy against God. How does God respond? Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. As far as I know, um, this is the only place in Scripture where it talks about God laughing. And this is not funny laughing. This is mocking. How dare you oppose me by opposing the rule of the one I put in place? God threatens them with judgment Verse 9, the anointed will break them with an iron rod and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. But in the threat of judgment is the offer of a reprieve, a hope to avoid the wrath of God. Look at verses 10 to 12. Therefore, I've stated the problem. I've told you what my anointed will do. Therefore, be wise. Be warned. Change your ways. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. There is still a chance Change your ways. Give up your futile plans. Stop your plotting and your rebellion. Kiss the sun. Take refuge in him, meaning love and obey God's anointed king. God is speaking graciously through David. He is not obligated to give a warning, but he does. If you will repent there will be forgiveness. Now, uh, a king threatening destruction by the power of his God was not a novel thing in the ancient Near East. Everybody did it. If a, a king was battling or plotting against another king, they were threatening each other, not only with their armies, but with the power of their God. Different nations had different gods, local deities. And a nation would threaten each other with the power of their God. It was simply the M.O. of the day. Uh, My God is going to beat up your God. The problem for these rebelling nations in Psalm 2 is that the God of Israel is not Dagon or Baal. The God of Israel is Yahweh. The God of Israel is the one true God, the creator and Lord of heaven and earth. The nations knew how Yahweh had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. They knew how God had humbled Egypt. Egypt was the power of the day, and God humbled Egypt. To rescue Israel. They had heard, the nations had heard how Yahweh had parted the Red Sea, how he had fed Israel manna from heaven, and how this small group of people, though it was a million, but compared to other nations, how this small group of people now lived in a country that once belonged to others. That God had driven out the other nations and given the land to Israel. That same Yahweh God anointed David as king. So to oppose David and his rule was to oppose Yahweh himself. In one sense, it's a fairly straightforward kind of psalm, isn't it? But let's put a a redemptive historical perspective on this psalm. Uh, Let us put it back into the story of the whole Bible. How are we to make sense of it uh, from the whole story that God is telling? And this is why I mentioned and read about Adam and Eve at the beginning. I think Psalm 2 actually harkens back uh, to what God was doing in the garden. Remember, Adam was created as a covenant son of God to reflect God's care for the creation. Adam was what? To extend the rule of God, God's kingdom, from the garden paradise to the ends of the earth. Adam rebelled. He wanted freedom and autonomy from the rule of God, just as these nations wanted freedom from David. God kicks humanity out of Eden but promises the snake crusher would come to take us back to the Garden. God chooses Abraham to make from him a nation through whom the world will be blessed. And just as Adam is called a son of God, so Israel in Exodus 4 is called God's firstborn son. Israel is a covenant son like Adam, created by God for God's purpose to extend his kingdom and his rule. Israel's responsibility as a covenant son was to make the name of Yahweh known throughout the world. In the Exodus, God delivered Israel with signs and wonders, and he did so so that his power would be manifested not just to Israel, but to all the other nations. And then Yahweh gives Israel a land Flowing with milk and honey, a kind of garden paradise for them to live in. And he gives them a covenant law to obey. Israel's job was to demonstrate to the world what faithful obedience to Yahweh looked like in a garden paradise. God's covenant son, Israel, was to be a light to the nations so that the rule of God would be extended to the whole earth. But just as God chose Adam to rule the garden, so God anointed and established David to rule his covenant son, Israel. Was the it say in verse 8? God says to David, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, David had great influence in the ancient Near East, but it didn't go to the ends of the earth. He did not possess all the nations. Is that just hyperbole? Or maybe it's poetic exaggeration that doesn't mean what it says. I don't think so. Think uh, uh, David is king, and in 2 Samuel 7, he built himself a palace. He is living in a palace, but the Ark of the Covenant that contains the Ten Commandments on it is the mercy seat, which represents the throne of God, the, the high priest makes atonement at the mercy seat on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur once a year. That Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. Now, it's a tent God designed. It's the tabernacle, but still a tent. And David says, it's not right that I live in a palace and the Ark still be in a tent. He says, let me build a temple for you, God, where we can place the Ark. But God, through the prophet Nathan, tells David, no. God says, you will not build a house for me. But then God says this, but I will build your house. And in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God says, your house And your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God made a covenant with David that a son of David would forever be on the throne. He would be the one whose kingdom would reach and rule the ends of the earth Adam and David are linked together in the story of redemption not just as covenant rulers under God they are linked together as they point forward to something greater they point forward to the second Adam the son of David the snake crusher who will always be faithful to Yahweh and will extend God's rule, his kingdom, to the ends of the earth. They point to Jesus Christ himself. Psalm 2, I believe, harkens back to Genesis 1-3. It speaks of God's present rule with David on the throne. But its ultimate, its final meaning, its fullest meaning is looking forward to Christ. The nations that rebel is the unbelieving world that will not submit to his kingdom. Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the new testament it along with about a dozen other psalms are sometimes called messianic psalms i think all the psalms or almost all the psalms are messianic because they all touch to christ but there's a certain number that the the picture of christ is so clear that it becomes even hard to miss it uh and this is one of those psalms and 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 i want to look at a particular part of it look again at verses uh four to eight God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession.'" David declares that his own appointment as king is God's decree. And it constitutes a special relationship to God. He is a son to God who is his father. This decree entitles David to an inheritance. That inheritance is the nations of the earth over whom he has authority to govern. And in verse 9 if those nations rebel, he has the authority to destroy them totally. This was and only could be true for David and his immediate successors in a very limited way. This decree is really prophesying the messianic kingdom of, that comes with Jesus and his earthly ministry. Verse 7, Yahweh says to Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I like the way the NIV says it. Uh, He, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now wait a second. I thought Jesus was the eternal Son and that the Father, as God, was the eternal Father. How is it that he says, Today you are my Son. Today I have become your Father. Uh, uh, It is true that Jesus is the eternal Son and God is the eternal Father, or the Father is. Uh, But the today here does not refer to Jesus in his eternal estate as the second person of the Trinity. The today in our passage is a declaration of sonship in human history. And so it's about Jesus, not in his eternal divinity, but in his humanity. As a man in his role as redeemer, God declares Jesus a covenantal son, the second Adam, the son of David, the promised king, and the child of Eve who would crush the snake. The eternal son of God becomes the covenantal son of man. Who came to fulfill righteousness for us? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, this decree of covenantal sonship is applied uh, to Jesus' earthly ministry in three different ways. First, uh, the Father Himself, God the Father, addresses the words. Of verse 7 to Jesus at his baptism in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, God says, You are my beloved Son. It is at his baptism that Jesus is anointed by what? The Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit comes down in the form of a dove? That anointing is uh, his anointing to be the Davidic king, to rule the nations. Right after he is baptized, what happens? Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to do what? Defeat the temptations of the snake. And then he comes back in spirit power and he begins to preach. And what does he preach? Repent, for the kingdom has come. Second, Uh, we see uh, this passage associated with Jesus' resurrection. In Acts 13, Paul quotes uh, verse 7 of our text as he preaches that the resurrection of Christ established Jesus as the Father's Son. By virtue of his resurrection, Jesus is God's fulfillment of all the promises to the Old Testament saints. For Paul... God was saying to Jesus by his resurrection, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Think what Paul says in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thirdly, verse 7 is applied to Christ in his his ascension, his exaltation uh, to the throne of glory, where he has all power and authority in heaven and earth. In Hebrews 1, this is what it says, verses 1 to 5, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down, meaning he was enthroned, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Psalm 2:7 refers to three different events in Jesus' earthly ministry. His, his baptism, his anointing, His resurrection with power and His ascension or His enthronement in glory. How is that possible? It's because all three events are part of one redemptive role. It's the role of Jesus as King. As our text says in Psalm 2, 6, God says, I have set my King on the the hill. Both Adam and David, as covenantal sons, were called to extend God's kingdom, God's rule, to the ends of the earth. This declaration of sonship applied to Jesus in his redemptive role as the incarnated Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. The eternal Son assumed a human nature and took upon Himself human responsibility to obey and to to submit to God. He became our covenantal Son for us. Christ was obedient as a Son to the Father in life and death. This is Philippians 2, 7. Jesus Emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by being obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, because he was an obedient son, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, what? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king. He has been declared king. He has been enthroned over his kingdom. And everyone will one day bow. He has conquered sin and death. He has crushed the head of the snake. Christ is King. We don't see the fullness of his kingdom now, do we? But a day is coming when we will see it and experience it with joy. There is a future reality, and not yet to the kingdom. But the kingdom is already now. So where is the future reign of Christ made visible? In us. As he rules our lives, we are citizens of that already not yet kingdom, living together under Christ's authority in the local church. The world mocks us, and the world mocks Christ. The world is like the nations, they oppose Yahweh and Yahweh's anointed one. they don't want to be ruled by god isn't that the truth nobody tells me what to do you know sort of now they don't want the benevolent rule of christ they want freedom they want autonomy in psalm 2 god threatens judgment those who do not bow will be broken but in that same threat he offers hope for those who acknowledge and repent of their rebellion today this morning God offers salvation to all who take refuge in Christ in his atonement for sin in his life, death, and resurrection. Outside of Christ, there is no hope because there is no salvation. For those who do not bow a knee now, there will be only judgment. There is salvation in Christ if we acknowledge our need to be ruled by God's covenantal son and king. Perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe you've never bowed a knee to Christ. But if you will acknowledge your need that you are a sinner and that godly rightly, God rightly judges you, you acknowledge your sin you, and you place your faith in Jesus. What he did Jesus died in our place. He took our punishment upon himself so that we could be part of his forever kingdom, so that we could return to the garden paradise and have fellowship with God. If that's you this morning, Christ says to you, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. As we close, I'm going to just read the, the end of DeYoung's book. Uh, this is what he says and how he finishes the book. As you can tell, this story is a is a big story. In fact, it's the biggest story it's a familiar story to some of us it is a true story for all of us but we have not seen the end of the story not yet we know uh, we know it is not the end because we haven't made it back to the garden we get glimpses of the garden here and there in our hearts in our families in the church But anyone who loves this story longs to see the one who is at the center of the story. The snake crusher is coming back again to wipe away all the bad guys and wipe away every tear. He is coming to make a new beginning and to finish what he started. He is coming to give us the home we once had and might have forgotten we lost. So keep waiting for him. Keep believing in him. Keep trusting that the story isn't over yet. God's promises never fail, and the promised one never disappoints. One day we will see him. One day we will be with him. One day there will be nothing but the best days day after day after day after day and forever and ever it will be a wonderful time to be god's children in god's wonderful world we pray with me father as your people who live in the already not yet we believe and bowed our knee to Jesus as king but sometimes life can overwhelm us sometimes we stumble but we thank you that you are always faithful to us that you never let us go and that you always pick us up father help us to see and believe with all of our heart the truths of your word. Let us not look at our temporal circumstances, and some of it here today is difficult. Let us not look at the here and now as though that's all there's ever going to be. Let us see that you are God and that you are working in our lives, in our circumstances right now, and it's for our good that you are bigger than all the problems that we have and that we can trust you with all that we are. Help us to do that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.